genuinely like it when women make the first move. Mm -hmm. There's a line I use on the lecture circuit every once in a while, which is men like women who like them. (laughs) Fair. And every time I use this line, the men in the audience are like nodding in unison. Mm. And the women are looking at me like I'm freaking crazy. (laughs) 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 Yeah, because that's not what they've been taught. They've been taught that the moment you express an interest in a man, he will lose interest in you. Heartbreakers. So on this week's episode, I really get to nerd out. And one thing that I don't often talk about is the fact that I was a biology major in college. Obviously not doing anything related to biology now. I work in entertainment, but it is still a topic that really fascinates me. And I've also always been really into data, even in my career. And so today's guest, John Berger, is a great way for me to kind of like merge my interests in dating with those interests. And he's authored two books. He'll dive into all of that when I bring him on momentarily. But essentially, he brings a lot of research and hard facts and numbers that are then applied to how women can kind of take control over their dating lives in order to maximize their dating success. And I will be the first to call out that I have not always been the most aggressive or the most proactive when it comes to making approaches in trying to find dates when I was single. I talk about it a lot on earlier episodes. It was something that I was always kind of conflicted about. And I think where I finally landed was if you are the type of woman who wants to make the first move and is comfortable doing that, then you should absolutely do it. But conversely, if you don't want to do that, then you shouldn't. And I think I would still stand by that. And John Berger says the same thing. People shouldn't do anything that makes them uncomfortable. If it totally goes against your dating philosophies, then don't try to force yourself into something that you don't agree with. However, John's book really provides great arguments around why maybe if you haven't considered being a little bit more proactive in your dating life, why you should and some of the benefits around that. And it really kind of brings me back to a common dating pet peeve I have. And it revolves around when people who are in relationships are talking to their single friends and they give some platitude. And the one that annoys me the most is, it'll happen when you least expect it. And it's like, what the fuck? No, it won't. Like that literally only happens in romantic comedies. That is when, you know, you have someone who's like too busy to date or is, completely blind to the opposite sex or the same sex, but oh, lo and behold, this person falls into their lap and pursues them even though they're not prioritizing dating. Honestly, dating is freaking hard. And so if you just have this mentality of like, oh, well, I guess it'll happen when I least expect it, what will probably happen is you will look around and maybe like years into the future, you'll be like, oh, fuck, it didn't happen. Like, I wonder why. And a few years ago, I had this dinner with a female executive on my team. It was actually kind of intimidating. I was like a coordinator. She was very senior to me. I think she was also probably like, what am I going to talk to her about? But we had a really great discussion. She's very successful in her career. And she 
seemed to be happy in her life, you know, but she was single. And I don't even remember how we got to this because it's not like I was looking at this executive and like, so why are you single? But it just came up organically. And she did say, you know, I just always thought that it would happen for me. And now here I am and it hasn't. And I can't recall if I was in a relationship at the time or if I was already single at this point when we had this discussion, but I remember that stood out to me clearly all these years later, I still remember this exact discussion. And I just thought like, I would never want to be that passive in my dating life and then look back with regret and think, oh, I wish I had taken these actions in my dating life earlier in order to find a partner who I could now be happily with. I'm not saying all of this to be like, oh my gosh, being single is a nightmare. But all I'm saying is that if finding somebody is your goal, don't listen to those friends who tell you that it happens when you least expect it. And so I feel like John has some really amazing insights into how you can be that proactive person, take charge of your own dating life, maximize your options. And it's a really great interview and I can't wait for you to hear from him. So I will leave it at that and bring him on. Hello, welcome back. We're here for another episode of Interstates and Heartbreak. And I'm very excited because today's guest combines one of my lesser known passions with the passion that I outwardly discuss every week, dating. And I'm really honored to be interviewing John Berger. He's an award-winning magazine writer, a contributor to Fortune, and now an accidental dating expert. He's also the author of two books, Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game, and Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating. John, welcome to the podcast. Leslie, thanks for having me on the pod. I am so excited. And full disclosure for you and for the listeners, I've now heard you on three different podcasts to discuss Make Your Move. And I just feel like due to the range of opinions and nuance around this topic, I imagine the tone of your conversations varies quite a bit based on who you're speaking to. Yeah, look, you and I talked a little bit about this before. before. I've I've only had one... (laughs) podcast interview that was overly confrontational. And to her credit, she did warn me in advance. And I I did appreciate the fact that she warned me that it was going to be a giant disagreement. (laughs) So look, I do not expect everybody to think I am right. It was a fascinating discussion to listen to, I have to say, because you both really had very strong convictions, both made great points. But yeah, I feel like don't worry, this is not like a gotcha. I'm not here to argue with you. It's like out of nowhere. No, you can no, no, you, you can argue with me, but I don't know if you want to name her, but the, <laughs> the interviewer in question here, she did, I, and I did appreciate the fact that the going into the interview, she told me what it was going to be like. And I mm-hmm. I genuinely appreciated the fact that she was honest about it. Yeah, I feel like just a quick mention, because I actually had her on the podcast recently. So it was We Met at Acme. And for anyone who listened to that episode, She's very traditional in terms of gender roles. And so it was really interesting to hear her strong takes and aversion to women making the first move versus like your advocacy for it. But yeah, I'm excited to dive into it here. But first, I would love to hear a little bit about your background. And I know you've addressed in the past in other interviews, the fact that you don't have the traditional dating background and would love to hear how you got interested (laughs) in studying dating and relationships. Yeah, so I I definitely do not have the traditional background for a dating book author. In my previous life, I was a business journalist for Fortune magazine. I covered really boring stuff like oil and gas in the stock market for Fortune. My sort of 
entree into this field, but it actually had a lot to do with, with fortune because the editorial staff there was more women than men. And it was one of these things where I couldn't help but notice that most of the men at Fortune, like myself, were married or involved in relationships, whereas the women were disproportionately single, even though I think I can safely say they had more going for them dating-wise than we guys did. I think for people in big cities like New York or Washington or LA, I don't think this is an unfamiliar thing. My wife and I had been talking about this for years and years and years. Why is it that we know all these fabulous single women, but we don't know any fabulous single men? It's <laughs> <laughs> so true. And it became this kind of curiosity that turned into a book idea. And I'll just, I mean, the brief, I don't want to drone on for too long, but initially my assumption for datanomics was that this had something to do with the big metropolitan cities like New York or London or Toronto or LA, that there was something about the job markets in these cities that were attracting disproportionate numbers of highly educated women and fewer educated men. And I was wrong. This is really kind of a global problem, or at least a Western problem in which women have been graduating from college at a much higher rate going back 20, 30 years. That for over the past 20, 30 years, we've had one third more women than men graduate from college in Western countries. And this has kind of spilled over into the post-college dating world. Yeah, I think it was really interesting to read about your advocacy around mixed collar dating because not diving too far into it, but you know, people tend to gravitate towards people who are very similar to them through assortative mating. And I will say I'm a big fan of mixed collar dating because my current boyfriend and my last boyfriend, they started college, they did not graduate. And it's like, I think that has nothing to do with someone's intellect level. Like I can have really amazing, stimulating conversations with both of those people. And it is interesting that people so typically default to a background that matches theirs when that's not necessary. I agree 100%. I do not believe a college degree makes you a better wife or a better husband or a better partner or a better significant other, whatever terminology we're using. There's no reason why what I call the college gender gap should make life harder for, for singles. The reason it does, though, is because of what you referenced before, this phenomenon of assortative mating. And at the same time, college education or college graduates of an increasingly skewed female, the people with college education have become increasingly unwilling to date and marry people with lesser education. And I do want to make clear that this isn't women, this isn't men, this is all college graduates. And in fact, men are even less likely than women to marry people of, of a lower education level than women. But the problem is that because there is this oversupply of educated women and undersupply of educated men, the way this plays out is it affects educated women more than educated men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the men suddenly become a commodity. And so I feel like it really leads to a lot of interesting shifts in their behavior. And right. Yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> 
the point I'm trying to subtly make mm -hmm. is that it's not like women are picky and men are not picky. Yes. When it comes to education, men are even pickier than women. It's just there's no punishment for the men because yeah. <laughs> the market is different. Yeah, they have their pick of college-educated yeah. women. Yeah. Key distinction. So I feel like that gender imbalance in education, I think that was something that was really interesting as I was, you know, hearing about datanomics and some of the findings there. And I would love to hear about how you kind of evolved into Make Your Move. And just to say, as I was reading the introduction of the book, the intro alone already hooked me because it was just <laughs> so fascinating to hear about, yeah. you know, your friend Sam and like her insights and just how she led to your conclusion about what women can do to kind of correct this imbalance in their dating lives. I, I should actually have her on. The next time somebody invites me on a podcast, I'm going to have her on with me if, if she's willing. But <laughs> I would love a follow-up with Sam. She seems great. You could. Her name is not technically, you know, I use pseudonyms in the book, but actually mm -hmm. she would be fabulous. And maybe we can do a follow-up because she could probably make all these points much more forcefully than, than I will. <laughs> But before we get into Sam, I think that the context here is that when I wrote Datanomics, mistakenly, I did not really view the book as a self-help book or an advice book or a dating book. Mm -hmm. To me, I was writing pop science. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, and again, this was a mistake, I thought of myself as a super serious business journalist who normally wrote cover stories for Fortune about Apple or oil companies, things like that. Mm -hmm. And my editor kept pushing me to include more solutions and more dating advice for educated women. And I kept resisting it because I had this really snooty attitude towards the whole self-help <laughs> genre. Mm -hmm. I, honestly, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was become the love doctor. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I just didn't view myself that way. So I eventually gave in, and if you read Datanomics, you'll see there is kind of a half a chapter at the end in which I offer up some dating advice and some dating solutions, but it's really, my publisher's going to hate me for saying this, but it's, but it's really half-assed. I, <laughs> I like the honesty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I my big piece of advice was to consider geography and, and local sex ratios when it comes to dating. And if you're 23 years old and you're just starting out and heterosexual monogamy or marriage is really important to you, yes, I could see choosing, you're offered two jobs, one in Washington, D.C., one in Denver. I could see taking the job in Denver if you really put a high priority on this. But a 40-year-old woman with a whole career and, and friends set and family who lives in Washington, D.C., is not going to pick up and move to Denver just because <laughs> the sex ratios are more favorable for women in Denver than they are in D.C. Mm -hmm. And I knew it at the time, but I just, I didn't really have my heart in that part of the book. Mm -hmm. I was much more interested in the intellectual discussion of solving the boy problem in education mm -hmm. than I was the dating problem for women. But Leslie, as I'm guessing, you could have predicted for me... <laughs> Once I got out on book tour with, with Datanomics, uh, the women who showed up at my events, yes, they were grateful to hear that mm -hmm. their dating problems were not really their fault. And they had an answer for their moms or <laughs> married friends about why they're still single. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they still wanted me to tell them what to do. Yeah. 
And I didn't have an answer for them then. And that was kind of the inspiration for Make Your Move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine there was a lot of, all right, great. Now what? Like, where's part <laughs> yeah. two? <laughs> yeah, I really sucked at the now what. I really thought just explaining the problem would be enough. Yeah. But it was foolish because you can't present a problem. You can't explain why dating has become so hard for women without offering up some hope or some solutions. And I should have listened to my editor. (laughs) Your editor is having like an I told you so moment if they end up listening. No, no. Her name is Maisie Tibnan. And Maisie, if you're listening, you were right. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. You know, we love the growth. We love the (laughs) self-awareness. So I guess for the listeners, I would love to hear in your words, what insights Sam, in quotes, had that inspired you to write Make Your Move? So Sam is, I'm gonna, we'll just say she's a, a fitness instructor, mm-hmm. as somebody I know pretty well. And she's very unfiltered and uncensored, but she's a good friend. When she read Datanomics, I knew that she would have some opinion. And I remember I was at my local Equinox gym and I bumped into her as I was walking out and she said, oh, wait, oh, hold on. I read the book. <laughs> you know, I mean, this may not be word for word what's in Make Your Move, but the, the gist of it was she loved the book. The women who were in this kind of predicament were like her friends, mm-hmm. exactly. But I should have talked to her first because she had all these solutions for them. Mm. And I love her to death, but <laughs> as an author, you don't want to always hear, well, I missed something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. But basically her story was that Sam, she's been married three times, no shortage of relationships. They haven't always worked out. But for her, her lack of kind of relationship success has never, ever, ever been about a lack of options or choices on her part. and. What she would tell you if she were on here, maybe we should, if you want to have me back, I I bet I could get her on here to do. Oh my gosh, I would love that. Is that she didn't wait around for guys to find her. And part of her thinking on all this has to do with her kind of her family background. She's a military brat. Mm -hmm. So she, I think between age five and 18, she moved five times or six Mm -hmm. times or something like that. And I don't know if you know any military brats, but they tend to be extroverts because... You have to make new friends all the time. You have to make new friends all the time. So she, it wasn't the kind of thing where she could sit around and wait for people to befriend her because every two, three years, you're the new kid. And if you wait for people to find you, you're going to be the lonely new kid forever. Yeah, it's old. Right. And this is a big theme for me. The way we make friends, I don't think there should be a gap between how we approach friendship and how we approach romantic friendship or romantic relationships. I think Mm -hmm. there should be a high amount of overlap. And certainly for her, there was. So I think her point of view was always, look, if I'm going to be assertive when it comes to making platonic friends, why should I sit around and wait for guys to ask me out? Mm -hmm. And she never did. I think in the book, there's a story about how she went to junior prom Mm -hmm. with the captain of the basketball team. Yes. 
<laughs> it was because she she asked him, "Do you want to go to junior prom with me?" And this did not endear her to the uh, to the queen bees at her high school, who you know this, this new girl had been there for a couple of years who suddenly. <laughs> And all these women are just waiting to be asked by this guy. Yeah, waiting, waiting. And she's like, what am I waiting for? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So it's so funny that you picked the name Samantha. And I don't know if this is a coincidence or intentional. I'm imagining like a Samantha Jones type because I know in the book you mentioned she's like blonde. She's obviously like attractive. And like, I'm just imagining like Samantha Jones's like looks and confidence, not necessarily like going to the sexual explicitness, but like you know, kind of similar thing where she's not going to wait around. And I will say she's six foot tall, blonde, the ultimate badass. Wow. I have no doubt that when she was 25, like if she'd been living in New York, you know, there would have been fashion agents, you know, finding her for, mm-hmm. but now like she's, she's my age. She's or well, in, my, in her fifties, mm-hmm. but even in her fifties, she's like this super fit, but honestly, like, I don't want to get too focused on her appearance. Yeah. Because I really think her success with men has less to do with her appearance than her attitude. Mm-hmm. Because I probably like you. I know a gazillion women who are incredibly attractive, mm-hmm. who have horror story after horror story about dating. Yeah. And I also know women who other women can't figure out like, well, how does she do it? (laughs) (laughs) I I can tell you what she looks like, but I don't want your listeners to get hung up on that because I really think Sam's story has more to do with her approach than what she looks like. Yes. And I'm glad you called that out because like the Samantha Jones comparison, it's like, okay, maybe the looks aspect is a coincidence, but I'm more thinking like her energy where it's like just this exuding confidence and not being afraid to kind of go after a man that you're interested in, which I feel like is a very unique characteristic. Mm-hmm. I always wonder whether the fact that she is tall for a woman gives her kind of a different view on things, so to speak. Quite possibly. I'm only 5'3", so I cannot relate to that. But <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like as we kind of dive into this discussion, I've talked about making the first move to some degree, like quite a bit on the podcast. So just wanted to like level set, like give a couple of disclaimers and just like add some context around my point of view. So one thing, of course, like this is all contextualized in the fact that I am in a relationship. This doesn't apply to me currently. It is with someone I met on a dating app, which I definitely want to dive into later in the conversation. (laughs) It doesn't mean you can't be happy together. I just have a different... (laughs) Yes, I know you have a strong thought, which I all very valid thoughts, all valid thoughts I want to dive into. And then, so I guess more importantly, when I was single, I wasn't really that girl who was like making the explicit first move. Like I have a really good friend who comes to mind whenever we go out, she's so comfortable approaching guys. I'm really envious in her comfort level doing that. But whenever I envisioned myself being that bold, it just made me feel like awkward. And I can't really articulate why I was just like, it doesn't feel like it's exactly my style. So my moves were more along the lines of like a low stakes introduction. Like I'll talk about, you know, asking a guy what he's drinking or like making a sassy comment when it actually like fits the scenario or the conversation. And sometimes that would lead to like flirty conversations or a lot of drinks or like number exchanges. But admittedly, it never like really amounted to dates that went anywhere. And I think that the approach was kind of like ingrained relatively early in like my dating experience. So I'll tell a really short story. 
So when I was a junior in college, I thought this guy in my class was really cute. And he would sit in the same spot, like class over class. And so eventually I was like, you know what, I'm just going to sit by him. I didn't have any friends in the class. So I was just sitting there alone, like not talking to anyone. And then eventually it was like, okay, like they would start to like, include me in conversation kind of and then we kind of became friends. And then the quarter ended and I was like, wow, that was that like you didn't ask for my number. But I feel like where I got the positive reinforcement for like being kind of passive and just like putting myself in his purview is that like the night after our class ended, he like found me on Facebook and like requested me and messaged me and was like, I think you're so cute. And I would love to hang out now that class is over. So I was kind of like, oh, all I had to do was like create the opportunity and be easy to talk to. But then that didn't really translate in my later experiences. So I have a question. Did you guys date enough so you were able to talk about the whole in-class experience? <laughs> we did not, John, I will admit. And okay. it, we like hung out a couple of times and it actually got really weird and fizzled out. So Okay, because it, I'm totally guessing here, but I'm going to just throw it out there. If you had gotten to know him better, I would love to know whether he had any idea whatsoever that you ended up finding a seat near him during class. Mm -hmm. My guess is he was completely oblivious. And I think, look, I'm not saying all guys are oblivious about this stuff, but I really think in general, when it comes to flirting, it's not just a guys versus girls thing. So I think if you read Make Your Move, there's a study I, I cite there, which shows that all human beings are shockingly oblivious. 70% of flirting goes completely unnoticed by the person on the receiving end. Mm -hmm. So this notion that, well, I'm not picking on you. I'm just, this no. could be any scenario. Well, like I sat next to him during class and I chatted him up about how much I like to sweat or whatever. Like in all likelihood, he just thought you were being nice, which you probably are nice. Yeah, I agree. And if the roles were reversed, it probably would have been the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the many problems with modern dating is people think, oh, I flirted with him. Like I sometimes I use these like goofy examples, like <laughs> I, I did a hair flip or a shoe dangle or something like <laughs> that. And he didn't notice. So that must mean he's not into me. Mm -hmm. And th there could be reverse things as well with men flirting with women. But the, just the reality is that we as human beings are not good at recognizing when we're being flirted with. Mm -hmm. So to make these grandiose judgments about whether or not the other person actually is interested is a mistake. And this is why your friend mm -hmm. who is willing to like put herself out there a little bit, she's never had a shortage of options, right? Yes, that is accurate. She does have a lot of options. Like there are a lot of guys who are interested, whether they're the right person or not. Like different story, but to your point, that's not the issue. I'm not going to help people make the right choices. But, <laughs> <yeah>. That's too <laughs> ingrained. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Also, that's a whole other book. So. <laughs> yeah, but no, I think you're completely right. And I think if I could tap into my junior year brain from back then, I wasn't like, oh, I want him to know I'm interested. I really was kind of like, oh, like I just want to create the opportunity for him to talk to me because I wasn't that confident in like being that assertive. And there was another time where there was this guy who I thought was cute for like years. That's all I'm going to say, because I don't want to identify who he is. But there was one night where I ended up hanging out with him. And I remember I thought like I'm being flirty. My like move was to leave my jacket at his place like during the pregame before we went out so that it was like, oh, well, I have to come back. And then he ended up flirting with me like it was pretty obvious that he was like making his move. 
And then later I found out it wasn't me being flirtatious that he was picking up on. My friend was like, oh yeah, like so-and-so told him that you think he's cute. And so I was like, oh, okay. But did ever, like in hindsight, don't you wish that he just knew that from the start as opposed to yes. having to like freezing your butt off without your jacket? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, yes. I thought I was so crafty, but it's like, you didn't have to be crafty. You could have just yeah. been like more direct. Right. Yeah. What if you lost your jacket? <laughs> Honestly, I could have never seen it again. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And like, I would love to kind of dive into the traditional schools of thought that kind of like lead to those types of behavior that I just kind of outlined and even more traditional schools of thought. And for me, like I mentioned, like the science behind it is so fascinating. And I would love to hear your summary of the junk science that has informed traditional views. So. I will offer up the summary, but under normal circumstances, I would be hesitant to recommend another book while I'm on a podcast promoting <laughs> my book. Fair. However, I'm going when it comes to this particular topic, I have a strong recommendation for your listeners. And that is, I cannot recommend highly enough the book Inferior by Angela Saini, who is a science writer in London. Mm-hmm. And this was a book that kind of I mean, I did lots of research on this topic, but she kind of put it all together and really helped me understand how flawed the conventional wisdom on gender roles, not just when it comes to dating, which is part of this, but when it comes to everything is. So Leslie's listeners, Angela Saini's book, Inferior, is almost as good as Make Your Move. Almost. Read Make Your Move first. Definitely yeah, buy Yeah, read Make Your Move first. Buy a couple of copies of Make Your Move. But if you have to buy another book, by Angela's book. Okay. Yes. So I, mean, I do think there's an idea out there that these gender roles, when they come to dating and mating, are kind of hardwired biologically, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think most men and women think there's something to that. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah. I would say so. The reality is they're not hardwired. I mean, there are like the, the most of the best selling dating books have been written over the past 20, 30 years. Books like The Rules or Ignore the Guy, Get the Guy. Mm -hmm. You can throw out a few more if you want. But (laughs) but they they all kind of revolve around a complicated version of playing hard to get. Mm -hmm. And an idea that men are biologically hardwired to chase and to pursue. And women are supposed to be nothing more than passive filters of male advances. And you can see how that what I consider to be junk science, and we'll get into this, mm-hmm. you can see how it plays out in the advice, because there's in one of the rules books, I think this may not be word for word, but it's close. There's a line in there along the lines of don't act so interested, pretend he's a guy you don't actually like. And I wasn't dating in 1950. It's possible <laughs> that that kind of approach may have worked once upon a time. I'm not going to say it never worked because I I don't know, but I don't think it works today. And I think I would have said this 10 years ago as well, but I do believe that in the post Me Too era, that kind of advice is really problematic Mm -hmm. because I'm not going to say men have learned all the lessons of Me Too as quickly (laughs) and as well as we should have. Mm -hmm. But I do think a lot of us, most of us, I'm hoping most of us, At the very least, at the bare minimum, we have learned that if you're at a party or at some kind of a social event, 
and you're talking to a woman and you like her, but she doesn't seem to want to talk to you. The correct takeaway from this is not to assume that she's playing hard to get. Mm -hmm. The correct takeaway is to leave her alone. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more guys are learning this lesson. If you read the book, there's a quote from an L.A. matchmaker. But basically, she made this point that in this environment, this is not a time to be coy. Mm -hmm. And that we're in an environment in which if women aren't assertive, the guy's going to assume that you're not interested. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit of an overstatement, but I do believe firmly that women who are assertive, particularly nowadays, have this huge built-in advantage mm-hmm. over other women who sit back and wait and wait and wait and wait mm-hmm. for guys to notice them or ask them out. Mm-hmm. So I'm not... I don't write for men. I'm not telling men what to do. Yeah. The dating books for men are that they're all like pickup artistry and stuff like that. So I, I don't care what men do. I'm just trying to offer up advice to women. And I just think, and I'm not, I also don't want to tell somebody to do something that's going to make them miserable. So if, yeah. if making the first move is going to give you agita, I mean, don't do it. But mm-hmm. I just think I've interviewed enough people, seen enough science that we can dig into that women who make the first move have an advantage. And I know you want me to talk about the junk science. Of, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So bring on the Drosophila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But you, you want to hear about the fruit flies, right? Yes. <laughs> right. So this notion that women are hardwired to be passive filters of male advances and men are hardwired to, to be pursuers. A lot of this comes from evolutionary biology. And on some level, I understand why this idea kind of gained traction in the dating crowd, because the evolutionary biologist who is kind of most responsible for this is Robert Trivers. And Robert Trivers, according to a lot of people in his field, is the most influential evolutionary biologist of his generation. Mm -hmm. And I get it. It's hard to sort of question the leader in your field. But to give you a sense of the kind of human being we're talking about here, This is how Robert Trivers once justified accepting research grants from Jeffrey Epstein. Mm -hmm. Quote, by the time girls are 14 or 15, they're like grown women were 60 years ago. So I don't see these acts as so heinous. So wild. This is the kind of person that other evolutionary biologists like David Buss or Stephen Pinker have kind of followed in the footsteps of. And if you dig into sort of the origin of Trivers's ideas on these very traditional gender roles when it comes to mating. For him, a lot of it originated with this study on the mating behavior of fruit flies. I mean, even before I get into the study, there is this giant nonsense factor of <laughs> like the whole notion that we're going to make grand conclusions about human mating flies. behaviors based on fruit flies is kind of crazy to begin with. Yeah. But- Let's just put that one aside. (laughs) Yeah. In this fruit fly study that he based a lot of his research on, maybe all of it in some way when it comes to gender roles and Mm -hmm. mating, the original study found that when fruit flies mate, 80% of the first moves are basically made by the male fruit flies. And the the females, all they do is like they they sort through the the male pursuers and find the alpha or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, you know, a lot of the males never even mate. 
this kind of thing. It's like a very kind of king of the jungle view of, <laughs> yes. of, of, of the fruit fly jungle. <laughs> yeah, the fruit fly jungle. And Trivers kind of use this to sort of make projections and conclusions about mating behavior for other species. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a well-known scientist at UCLA, uh, Patricia Gulati, mm -hmm. who she had been studying the mating behavior of eastern bluebirds. And it didn't really mesh with the kind of the dominant conventional wisdom of people like Trivers or Jeffrey Miller or Steven Pinker or David Buss, you know, or like all, all these other kind of Trivers acolytes out there. Mm -hmm. What she found was that, that female Eastern bluebirds, even though bluebirds are ostensibly supposed to be monogamous during mating season, mm -hmm. The females were actually flying away at night to mate with other males. Mm -hmm. <laughs> scandal. It's a scandal of the bluebird world. <laughs> yeah. And when she presented her findings, the Trivers acolytes said, well, maybe you're right, but in all likelihood, the, the female bluebirds in your study were raped because that was their only possible explanation for why the genetic... <sighs> for why a female could possibly actively seek out like copulating with more than yes. one male. Yes. So Patricia Gawadi, as you can probably guess, kind of got fed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she decided, you know what? I'm going to redo the whole fruit fly study that all these male evolutionary biologists have based all their grandiose conclusions on. Mm -hmm. And let's just see. So Gawadi redid the original fruit fly study. She videotaped all the fruit fly romance. <laughs> and what she discovered, lo and behold, is that the original study was nonsense. Mm -hmm. The female fruit flies moved towards the male fruit flies, you know, just as much as the males moved towards the females. Mm -hmm. All the supposed evidence about the, these only a small percentage of the males were actually passing along their genetic material. Wrong. That's not what would happen at all. <laughs> And she actually, I mean, her conclusion was it's kind of, she actually questioned whether the editor of the original study actually read it. Wow. Because it was just so obvious, like, that it was wrong. Mm -hmm. It was remarkable. But, but this is one of these classic examples of you have junk science from the 1950s or whatever, and people build whole areas of expertise on stuff. With, and nobody goes back to question the origins of it. Mm -hmm. Patricia Gowadi did. Other female evolutionary biologists have done similar studies. And uh, <laughs> this is way off. We're getting <laughs> off topic here. But, but the point is that a lot of the science, like you know, if you read the rules books, yeah. the authors kind of claim that, oh, women can pursue jobs and apartments, but they can't pursue men. Mm -hmm. It's just science. Well, it's not science. And yeah. there are plenty of cultures around the globe that are more matriarchal and where women do the pursuing. It doesn't mean they're good or bad. It just means it's different. Yeah. And this notion that human beings are hardwired to act one way is just not true. Mm -hmm. These are things that we pass on culturally. Mm -hmm. They're not hardwired into our DNA. Yeah. So... Two things I just have to say about the science aspect of it. I just, as a UCLA alumni, love that it was UCLA graduate who was the one to debunk all of this. She's a professor. Yeah, oh, a, a professor. professor. She's okay, a professor okay. there, yeah. Well, I love the representation. And 
Funnily enough, the class where I met that guy, where I started to sit next to him, was an evolutionary biology course focused on sexuality across animal species. So it all comes full circle. So I'm curious, what was the... Was there a, a theme of like males are hardwired to pursue and females are hard- Honestly, no. I think the professor was, she didn't really take those very old school, like now debunked roles. Good. And Good. so she did actually mention Patricia Gowadi's research and yep. was also really interesting. I think we talked about, granted, like I don't work in biology anymore and it's been about 10 years since I graduated, but I think it was baboons. She talked about the fact that like, they are one of the species where like homosexual mating is really common. I feel like oftentimes when you think about evolutionary biology, like intellectuals aren't really focusing on that. To your point, I think they're often focused on like the traditional male-female dynamics and not necessarily the deviations in like sexuality in the animal kingdom because it doesn't really align with like evolutionary philosophies. Yeah. So like, I do write for a hetero audience because mm-hmm. that's who's affected by lopsided gender mm-hmm. ratios. I mean, I, this is probably stating the obvious, but gay men don't care how many or, or how few women there are. <laughs> just as the same yes. way that, <laughs> irrelevant. You know, queer women don't care how many or how few men there are. And, yes. uh, however, I think this may be related to what you were saying. I do think that there's something to be learned here, though, from same-sex dating. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm saying this is there was a there's a young, probably your age, not that you weren't young, but like when I think young, <laughs> Relative. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, she's not like 20 or something, but yeah. you know, maybe a 30 year old Hollywood comedian writer named Quinn Marcus, who I was working with a little bit on a project related to datanomics and she's queer. And when we were talking about all this. She told me this hilarious story about how she and her college girlfriend were sleeping in the same bed for a month before <laughs> either one of them worked up the courage to kiss the other. <laughs> oh my gosh. And her point was that these traditional gender roles can actually spill over into same-sex dating in which, mm-hmm. particularly for queer women, nobody knows who to, who's supposed to make the first move. Yeah. And not to make my second Sex in the City reference in one episode. <laughs> you can make a hundred. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it just reminds me of in and just like that, where Miranda, you know, now that she's in her first relationship with a woman in one of the later episodes, she admittedly says she doesn't really know how to act. And she is kind of chastising herself for behaving differently than she would if she were dating a guy. But it is kind of like, yeah, but maybe the way that you behave when you're dating a guy doesn't need to be the way that you would behave when you're dating anyone. You can just kind of act however you feel rather than kind of playing these games and acting coy and all of that. My books aren't written for same-sex daters, but I know enough queer women that like aggressive queer women just have the same massive advantage when it comes Mm -hmm. to dating that aggressive or assertive straight women have. Because Mm -hmm. again, when it comes to women dating other women, nobody is sure who's supposed to make the first move. And I don't know if you, yeah. did you ever watch the, the first L word series? No, I've heard it's amazing, but I've not watched it. It is amazing. But like the, you can really see it there. Like there's one character in particular who she's plenty attractive, but her appeal to other women is really based largely on the fact that she like goes after whatever and whoever she wants all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess kind of going back to how the junk science has impacted dating today and the fact that it still permeates our dating culture, it's just really interesting because 
gender roles have evolved so much and in so many different ways. And I also feel like perceived rules around dating have evolved in a lot of ways. And yet there's still this like very ingrained part of people. And I think, you know, we see it on social media even where people are still taking this very traditional role. And I think it's evolved in some ways, like on TikTok in particular, people are saying like, if he wanted to, he would. And to me, that feels like a modern adaptation of he's just not that into you. It's kind of the same philosophy of, oh, well, if he's not making this first move, then it means he's not interested and you should just move on. And so I guess I would just kind of love to hear a little bit about, I feel like I can predict how you feel about that sentiment, but I would love to hear you articulate your thoughts around working off of if he wanted to, he would assumption. So it's kind of, it's like a funny idea because basically... If you think about it, it assumes that men are essentially a different species, mm-hmm. that our, our brains work like we're mysteries that have to be, <laughs> be, yes. be unraveled, whereas we must operate in irrational ways. I'm not saying we don't, but in some respects, but I don't think we should assume that when it comes to decision making, men are really any materially different from women. Mm-hmm. So if you are pursuing a job, if it was a job you wanted, would it ever, ever, ever occur to you, you know what, I've met the CEO over there. <laughs> he knows I'm good and I'm in his field. He probably should know that I'd like to work for him. Mm-hmm. And if he hasn't already made me a job offer, that probably means it wasn't meant to be. Like, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, nobody would ever think that way. Like if, if you need knee surgery. Mm-hmm. And you call like the three top orthopedists in your area. If one of them, if your favorite doesn't call you back immediately, are you going to say, yeah, it wasn't really meant to be, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is not how we operate in the real world. Yet, because of this kind of junk science that has permeated the world of dating, humans have these really like, twisted ways of understanding how to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And as I said, this whole notion of he's just not into me or what was your line about it's not meant to if be. If he wanted to, he would. Yeah. If Yeah. I mean, again, flirting doesn't work or at least 70% of the time, the person on the receiving end of the flirtation has no idea that she or he is being flirted with. Mm-hmm. So this idea that we're supposed to, that humans have a, supernatural way of intuiting who's interested in them and who is not, it's just not true. Mm -hmm. And this is why people who are direct and assertive just have a a big advantage over others who wait. Mm -hmm. And again, for me, the advantage for women being assertive is if you didn't have this gender imbalance when it came to the college grad dating market, it might not be as important. Mm -hmm. But If we're in, like, currently in U.S. colleges, the gender ratio in undergraduate education in the U.S. is now Mm 60-40 among current students. That's three women for every two men. That's 50% more women than men who are going to be graduating from college next year. Mm -hmm. Given the numbers game, I just think there's an advantage to being assertive. But I I also think, back to what we talked about way back when, I do not believe you have to date or marry somebody who went to college. But Mm -hmm. as much as I say that, people typically push back against the idea. I tend to get a lot of negative feedback to that idea. So if you insist on 
dating somebody who's just like you in terms of educational background, there's an advantage to not waiting around. Yeah, that's fair. So I wanted to backtrack slightly, and I am just playing devil's advocate a little bit because you gave two really great examples around like, you would never just wait around for a job. You wouldn't wait around to book like a medical appointment. But I think the difference is like, there's kind of a stigma and I'm not saying the stigma is right, but I think among a lot of people who are traditional, there's like a stigma of, okay, well, maybe if I approach and I'm too aggressive, then I'll be looked down upon. Like, even if it's, you know, effective in the short term, like maybe the guy will value me differently. Versus like, you're not worried about like, oh my God, is my doctor going to think I'm needy and then like treat me differently than other patients. (laughs) So I would love to hear like, is there research and like, have you, I'm sure you have, like, have you talked to guys to like kind of debunk that theory that maybe they view women who are more assertive differently than women who aren't? Two things. One, that stigma is of huge value to women who are willing to be assertive. Mm -hmm. because it allows them to kind of have an open playing field, so to speak. If no women were afraid of making the first move, there would be no advantage to making the first move, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So that's point number one. Number two is there, if you read Make Your Move, you'll see there have been multiple studies showing that contrary to popular opinion, men genuinely like it when women make the first move. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a line I use on the lecture circuit every once in a while, which is men like women who like them. (laughs) Fair. And every time I use this line, the men in the audience are like nodding in unison. Mm. And the women are looking at me like I'm freaking crazy. (laughs) 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 Yeah, because that's not what they've been taught. They've been taught that the moment you express an interest in a man, he will lose interest in you. Yeah. And... Again, the the science doesn't back this up. And in fact, there's a great study that was written up in the New York Times a few years ago by a written up by a woman, a professor in Canada, and she found that women who kind of give a hard time to other women who make the first move in dating or are assertive in dating, the women who shame the other women mm-hmm. tend to have outsized levels of success when it comes to dating. Whereas the women who are kind of victims of this sorts of shaming tend to have boyfriends or relationships later. Interesting. So I think there's just not a lot of evidence that women who are assertive have less success. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, and this is a little bit of being glib on my part, but one of the points, as you saw in the book that I like to make is that making the first move is the only dating strategy ever to be awarded a Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) you remember this part from the book i'm being a little bit glib and taking some liberties here but the Mm -hmm. the story here is there's a there are a couple economists who um, did research on on matching theory Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. and matching isn't just dating yeah it could be job hunting school admissions things like Mm -hmm. that but what they found is that whichever party initiates the match achieves on average a better outcome yeah. And that's not at all surprising to me as a guy, because one of the advantages that a guy always has, or, or like in the traditional world where the yeah. guy always makes the first move, the one advantage that guys have is at least they, they have a chance with their first choice woman. Mm-hmm. Like you can ask her out. She could say no, mm-hmm. but at least you get the yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. Under the old rules, the woman who liked the guy 
all she could do was a hair flip and a shoe dangle. And, <laughs> and you know, I, again, I'm being, I'm being a little facetious here. Mm-hmm. But if you follow the old rules, she's not guaranteed a chance with her first choice guy mm-hmm. because he has to intuit or realize that she's interested in him. And as we discussed, when it came, comes to flirting, flirting doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hard truth. And I feel like, you know, this is kind of the dating application of the phrase, shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. Or to use something that's like less of an old-timey colloquialism, I feel like a good example to consider is like whether or not you would passively set up a dating profile. And so like I use Hinge as an example, and I know, again, we definitely are going to dive into your thoughts on dating profiles. But with Hinge, you do kind of have to make the first move in the sense versus on other apps where it's just blind swiping because you have to like something about their profile. So I guess as a female, it's like, would you set up a dating profile and then do nothing and then just wait to see who liked you and only go out with those men? Or does it seem more likely that you'll wind up with a match you're excited about if you're also sending likes to people who interest you, kind of? So as you know, having read the book, my advice would be not to set up the dating profile. Yes. Um, (laughs) But I will say, I mean, Hinge, once upon a time, was one of the only dating apps I liked. Mm -hmm. When Hinge started out, in order to be matched with somebody, you needed to be within like two degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. Basically, you needed to be friends or friends of friends on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So there was social accountability. Yeah. Like you wouldn't be matched with somebody who was not like connected to you in some way. Mm-hmm. And if you go out on a date with your cousin's coworker mm-hmm. and you behave badly, there are going to be social consequences to <laughs> yes. behaving badly. And conversely, if you go out with that person, you might feel more comfortable with them. And the first date might go better because, you know, well, you know, that's Joe's coworker. Mm-hmm. And I don't like particularly with young singles who don't know anything other than online dating, I don't think they have a full appreciation of how much the anxiety tied to first dates with complete strangers affects the dating outcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally fair. And so I guess this is a perfect transition into talking about the apps. And so going back to one of my early disclaimers, I met my boyfriend on Hinge actually, but not when it was like a mutual friend connection. It was more recently. But I will also be the first to say that even though, you know, I feel like this was a great connection, before that, I went on so many dates that I have griped about on the podcast, friends, and, you know, my mom also is not a fan of dating apps, though fortunately I haven't had to hear those complaints since (laughs) I've started dating this person. (laughs) And I feel like, you know, we can definitely all agree on a lot of the shortcomings of dating apps. To your point, there's like no social accountability when you're meeting strangers. There's the potential for people to misrepresent themselves. There's like paradox of choice. But there was one thing that I really wanted to talk to you about a little bit more. And so you kind of talked about like, you didn't use the word meet cute, I don't think, but you talked about like the importance of kind of having like first encounter memories. And to quote, I think you said, first encounter memories can anchor a couple's story and reflect the current and future hopes of a relationship. Vividly and emotionally remembering the first sight of love may function to sustain satisfaction in one's marriage. So I would love to kind of dive into that because I feel like sometimes I've thought that people put a little too much importance on the meet cute. And just to say like, 
I think there can be a danger in getting too caught up in the story of how you met someone because it might cause you to ascribe more importance to the relationship or want to hold on to it, even if there are other flaws. So I'd love to hear about the rationale or the philosophy around why that strengthens a connection. So I actually agree with everything you said, although I don't view it as a negative the way you do, Mm. because I believe that every relationship is going to have challenges and pitfalls and problems. There are no perfect relationships. There are no perfect marriages. And if you believe that the way you met was fate or faith, I mean, like I've, I've been on evangelical Christian podcasts in which when I talk about fate, they view it as kind of as more faith. Like Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it was kind of meant, it was deemed by God. But I I view this as, as something very similar in that if you believe that the way you met was important. Mm-hmm. It is you are going to be more invested in the relationship and you are going to be less likely to bail on the relationship mm, okay. when things go bad and things are going to go bad. There are no perfect relationships. Everybody has fights. Mm-hmm. And there was a study that came out of the UK after my book came out, but it jibes with what I what I wrote about in my book. It found that the divorce rate for couples who meet on dating apps is six times higher than it is for couples who meet in the real world. Mm -hmm. And to me, this gets to what you're talking about, that everybody has struggles, everybody has fights, everybody has no relationships are perfect. Mm -hmm. The question is, how invested are you in staying together? Mm -hmm. And if you are part of the same circle of friends or knew each other going way back when, it's much easier to sort of decide that if your significant other or your wife or your husband did something bad or said something bad, it's much easier to put that in context and just move on than it is if it's somebody who you just met mm-hmm. or met a year ago. And I like, Leslie, do you have a best friend? Yeah. How did you meet your best friend? In college. In college. Okay. So I'm guessing with your best friend, is this a woman? Yes. This, okay. I'm guessing she could probably screw up a lot mm-hmm. before you would bail on the friendship. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you don't tell her that, but yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if, if this was somebody you met on Instagram, we'd been friends with online for a while, or maybe met once or twice, mm-hmm. and then they said something wrong, I'm guessing you'd have a different view on that. Human beings evolved as social animals. Mm -hmm. We connect through shared experience. And this isn't just human beings. All primates are social beings who connect through shared experience. And this is why you go to a sporting event and your team is winning. It's a much more intense thing if you're in the presence of your friends than if you're watching on your couch. Yes. Or you're watching a comedy show. You go to a comedy club with your friends. The jokes are always better, right? (laughs) Like if you're in the physical presence of other people versus on your sofa. Mm. And to me, this is really important. And we underestimate the value of shared experience. Mm -hmm. So can you imagine going on bestfriends.com and finding a connection like the one you have with your college friend? I cannot. I imagine like Bumble BFF would argue otherwise, because, you know, they're trying to sell the fact that you can make those connections. but. Yeah, I've, this should be your next episode. You should talk to people who, because I've, I have, who've mm-hmm. done Bumble at you know, BFF. And, mm-hmm. and it'd be interesting to see if they can, this isn't a dating thing. This is just a, 
yeah. a human relationship. If you can recreate the same kind of connection that people form through shared experience mm-hmm. online, and I'm not saying it's impossible. Just like I'm like I, I would never say that you and your boyfriend can't. Like I'm not saying it's impossible to achieve yeah. happiness through a dating app or find a friend through Bumble. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's harder, and I don't think we appreciate how much harder. And I just think there's a lot, for me, a lot of it has to do with the first date, Yeah. that the anxiety level, maybe I should stop talking and you can talk about this, but the anxiety level that particularly women bring to the first, I mean, I'm sure there are some out there, but I don't know any young women who, when they go out on the first date with a a new person from a dating app, step in if I'm wrong. But the process often begins the day before Googling the guy to make sure that Robert, hedge fund manager, isn't actually Billy Bob, the married ex-con, mm-hmm. right? The next day, when you're meeting him at Sushi Palace at 7.30, you tell your roommate, tell your friend where you're going to be. If you don't hear from me by 10, maybe get worried. Mm-hmm. And guys don't appreciate this at all. I, mean, I, was, I was on a podcast several months ago with a, an author, a male author, his podcast, and he was recently divorced. And he just began dating again. And he told me the story about how he went out on a coffee date and he was shocked that the woman had knew all this stuff about him <laughs> before the first date. Mm-hmm. And he thought it was creepy and weird that she had done all this research on him before the first date. Just and I said to him, look, if you look at the research on this, Pew Research did a study last year, 55% of women consider online dating to be unsafe. Mm-hmm. One in five women have been threatened with physical violence while using dating app. Wow. This Tinder swindler documentary. Oh my gosh, I mean, yeah. Part of me thinks like, okay, I'm, it's an entertaining story. Mm-hmm. But what happened to those women is the, of all the things that- That could have happened. I could give you a hundred links mm-hmm. of stories far more awful than yeah. losing some money on, mm-hmm. you know, to a fraudster on Tinder. I mean, there, I feel stupid as a man saying this. And I don't think guys particularly appreciate the physical risks that women take when they go out on first dates with complete strangers, like, like this guy who I was on the podcast with. Yeah. They don't really understand what's at stake here for, they just think it's weird that she's Googling him. Yeah. And my point is that this anxiety level that that people bring to the first date, it's hard to fall in like or fall in love if you are worried that the guy isn't who he says he is or Mm -hmm. may harm you in some way. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a story I tell in the book of a woman who's a divorcee, and she described online dating to me as a doubter's game. Mm-hmm. And that was because she had so many experiences with the guys lying to her on first dates from dating apps. Uh, guys lying about whether they were single, lying about their professions, lying about what they just wanted to hook up versus mm-hmm. a relationship. And she started treating all, the, all of her first dates kind of like interrogations mm-hmm. because she got sick of being taken advantage of. Yeah. And I totally get why she was doing that. But obviously, you could finish the story for me, I'm sure. Yeah. That's not going to lead to a lot of second dates. Not exactly romantic, no. Right. Yeah. And she's now engaged to a guy who she met through a mutual friend. Oh, wow. And she told me that when she went out on the date with the friend of a friend, she didn't even bother Googling it. 
Mm-hmm. And she said she didn't have to because she knew that her good friend would never, ever, ever, ever set her up with a guy who was unkind or untrustworthy or unsafe or anything like that. All she had to worry about is whether she was attracted to him or whether there was chemistry. Mm-hmm. And she went into it with this open mind and this comfort level. And he wasn't exactly what she was expecting, but it didn't matter mm-hmm. because she had a level of comfort that she had never had with any of her online dating experiences. Yeah, that's totally fair. And I do feel like, you know, even when I was online dating, I still would go out very regularly trying to meet people. I think that could spawn a whole other conversation of whether going out is the right way to meet people because it didn't exactly lead to anything. But I was very much like, you know, there's so much more ease in going out with someone who you kind of have a sense of what their vibe is versus like, oh yeah, maybe you have great banter over text. And again, this is like the least of your problems is that, oh, we had great banter and then he fell flat in person. It could be way worse than that. But yeah, I definitely was thinking I would love to eliminate that question of what someone is like. And so I would love to meet someone in person. And I think one difference, which I wasn't doing this really strategically, I actually just told this story on my last episode, because I just had my boyfriend on the podcast, but he was the first guy who I had a FaceTime date with before meeting up with him in person. And so by virtue of that, I feel like it was the first online date that I'd been excited for in a really long time, because I was like, oh, okay, like we got that out of the way. I thought the FaceTime was going to be super awkward just by nature of how FaceTimes with a stranger could be. And the fact that it wasn't, the fact that I was like, oh, he's as handsome as I expected him to be. He's <laughs> funny. I could just go into the date being like, I'm really excited to meet this guy in person versus being like, oh, I wonder what he's going to be like. There's a study I came across. It's not in the book, but maybe it should have been, which found that that singles learn as much from the sound and uh, from somebody's voice as they do from their physical appearance mm-hmm. in terms of whether of like determining compatibility. And I'm, this is the reason I like your FaceTime story, because not only did you see what you look like, but you had a conversation with him. You got to see his body language, at least mm-hmm. the inflections in his voice. There is so much information that you can learn about somebody just from talking to them. Yeah. And I'm always stunned how many young singles go out on first dates with people they've never even had a phone conversation with. Yeah. The entire interaction leading up until the first date has been via text. And like, at least hear the sound of their voice. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm sounding like an old person, but I, no. I, I mean, they're, but I think your, your story is important. Like, how much did you learn about him just from hearing his voice? quite a bit. And it was only a 20 minute conversation. And I think even going a step further, I actually had a phone call with someone I think that I matched with one or two months before I met my boyfriend. And so I had this phone call before the date, I'd been really excited to go out with this guy, the phone call, I was like, wow, he is like a great voice. And so I'm super excited for this date. And then I show up, And it was really, really awkward. Like there were just mannerisms and just like body language and stuff that I couldn't pick up over the phone call. So I think the phone call is a great start, but I think the video date really just like took it to the next level and like answering those questions. I think the video date and the phone call is better than going out with somebody you've traded text messages with over. But as you know, my general point of view is that it's best to go out with people you actually know from the real world as opposed to total strangers off an app. 
as you know, I'm not a fan of online dating in general. I'm not saying it's impossible to meet your true love on a dating app. I just think it's hard. Well, I think that's a great transition because there are probably women who, you know, they're like, okay, this is so great. But like the idea of it still makes me really nervous. And, you know, maybe there are women who even think I will take the first move on the apps. I'll slide into someone's DMs. But there's a question of like, okay, does it become too aggressive if I do it in real life? Or like, how do I just like get comfortable with making that transition from making the move online versus in real life? So again, I'm a fan of dating people we actually know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, a few months ago, I was talking to a college group at Rollins College in Florida, and I was sharing with not only my concerns about sort of the safety of online dating, but the efficacy as well. I mean, I mentioned the divorce rate study. There was a study out of Stanford University, which found that one-year breakup rate for online couples is 16% versus 8 or 9% for people who meet through friends and family. Mm-hmm. 6% for people who meet at work, which is my favorite place to meet people, even though nowadays it may not be kosher. Mm-hmm. And also it's only 1% for couples who meet at a house of worship. Mm-hmm. So my belief is if you connect with people you know from the real world, people you who you have shared interests and shared values, shared activities, it's going to be a more successful relationship. But I get the idea that the people think, I don't know anybody from the real world. How am I supposed <laughs> to meet somebody? So anyway, I was, at this, I was doing this talk, this Zoom talk at Rollins College, and the, a woman asked that question, like, I hear what you're saying, but how am I supposed to meet anybody other than through an app? So I took a chance, and I put Zoom into Brady Bunch mode, and I had like 40 <laughs> boxes on my screen. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'd like a show of hands. And the question was, how many of you have somebody you know or like from the real world whom you've ever wondered about dating. Mm-hmm. 40 kids in the class, 40 hands went up. And yes, I realize if these were 51-year-olds instead of 21-year-olds, mm-hmm. the numbers might have been different. But I've asked this question a lot, a lot to different kinds of groups. And overwhelmingly, the majority of people already have somebody in mind who they've wondered about dating and have an interest in dating. Mm-hmm. So my question is, why would you start from zero with a complete stranger if you already have identified somebody from the real world, somebody you know and like, somebody you wondered about dating? Hmm. That's a great question. So I guess that kind of goes back to me saying when I was trying to meet someone in person, a lot of that revolved around, oh, well, let me go out and maybe I'll meet someone that way. But it's like, to your point, they're still strangers versus someone who I have like a shared connection or interest with. Look, I'm not saying you can't, go to a bar and meet somebody and find the love of your life. Obviously you can, mm-hmm. but if we're talking about what I'm really advocating and make your move, it's not that it's mm-hmm. looking for shared connections, shared experiences. It's funny, my not funny, but it's true. My favorite dating app isn't even a dating app. Mm-hmm. It's meetup. So like you like bird watching or you want to find a running group or you're a Lakers fan, you know, it's not for singles. It's for everybody. Yeah. So if you want to go clean up the beach or these kind of activities or social activities you can do where you can meet other like-minded people, people with similar interests in a non-pressured situation where there is no pressure to connect because it isn't a dating experience, it's a human experience. Mm -hmm. I think you're far more likely to find a romantic connection, even though it isn't a dating site. than you are on a dating app. And one of the reasons I say that is there was a a Wall Street report that came out not so long ago 
Do you want to guess how much time the average young single spends on dating apps these days? Okay, I think I might remember it from your book. So, yeah, well, actually, it's worse now. It's worse now. So go ahead. Okay, was it 90 minutes a day? I feel like it was something crazy. It was like 90 that. minutes a day. A more recent study, everybody at home can do the math themselves, <laughs> but oh, it was gosh. 20 hours a week, which is more than 90 minutes a day. I that's think. so crazy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. So, like, young singles now are spending 20 hours a week on dating apps. That doesn't even include the actual dates, right? Yeah. Is that a good use of your time? I mean, are there other, <laughs> like, and I'll tell you, and I know that you're a success story here, but let me ask you this. How many of your friends who use dating apps, particularly the women, how many of them have said to you, you know what? I love dating apps so much. <laughs> I mean, I don't even have to finish. The, I mean, you're laughing before. I, I'll tell you what I was going to say. I mean, you began laughing right away. But how many women do you know who said, I love the dating apps so much. All the men are so kind and so honest. And it's so easy to find true love. I don't even need to get five words into this little shtick before everybody starts guffawing as if it's like the most the craziest absurd. thing. Right. So why would you be spending, not you personally, but why would anybody be spending 20 hours a week on dating apps if it's so hard? Mm -hmm. And according to the Pew Research study, if it's somewhat dangerous, especially mm -hmm. for women, I, I just think there are better options out there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, not everybody already has somebody in mind who they had wondered about dating, but I think lots of people do. Mm -hmm. and. You know, I, again, this isn't an everybody thing, but I've heard, I've heard too many stories from young singles about, well, I hear you, but I don't want to ruin the friendship. Mm -hmm. How many times have you heard that? Quite a few. Yeah. Quite a few. So my take is, look, if you're just looking for a hookup or you don't believe in monogamy or you're not looking to get married, I get it. That makes perfect sense. But mm -hmm. if you write dating books, you write for people who are looking for a life partner, mm -hmm. a spouse, a husband, a wife. And if that's your, your goal, this notion that you're going to ruin the friendship, to be blunt, who the fuck cares yeah. if you ruin the friendship? You're not shopping for a used car here. Mm -hmm. You are looking for a life partner. And if you have to take some risks in ruining a friendship, so be it. I mean, the, the fact that you've made this friendship has already told you a whole lot about whether you're compatible with this person. Mm -hmm. I also feel like there's an argument to be made that the friendship is kind of in a way already ruined if you don't make the move, because it's like either you're going to pine over this person forever or like eventually they will likely get partnered off with someone else if you don't make your move. And then what? Yeah, I had, there's a woman and a reader email me about this topic. And my reply to her was, how are you going to feel if he tells you a month from now that he started seeing someone? Mm -hmm. And her response was, I would be devastated. And I actually think he would be devastated too. Mm. So like, if it's that obvious to both of you, look, I, it's easy for me as a married guy to say, embrace the awkwardness and take yeah. chances and don't worry about the embarrassment. So yes, it's easier for me to say that, but I really believe it. I really believe that the more that you embrace the awkwardness and embrace the possibility of rejection, the more that you're going to get back. Yeah. Okay. This is a perfect way to kind of transition into a story that I wanted to say for the end okay. of the podcast. And so initially 
when I first discovered your book, discovered you, it was just over a year ago, I think, on like Girls Gotta Eat podcast. It's one of my favorite shows. And so it actually inspired me to record an episode with one of my guy friends called Stop Waiting for Mr. Right. And I actually kind of, you know, talked about some of the philosophies that you had shared because for years, this friend Denzel, he's been like, you should be more aggressive with like meeting people and like expressing interest in guys. And to be honest, I felt kind of bad because it didn't quite resonate when he said it. But then after hearing you explain it, I was like, okay, this resonates a bit more. So we talked about this scenario and it was during the pandemic. I'm still working from home. So I didn't have like all of those interactions. Obviously it's very different now. We're out more now, but I was very much like I'm at home. I'm not meeting new people. And there was this guy who would run past my condo like almost every morning around the same time. And I just thought he was really cute. And so I was telling Denzel about this and he's like, well, why don't you ask that guy out? And so I would love to get your thoughts because this is very different from oh, you're in a natural environment where you can approach this person, you have something to talk about. I was like, how am I going to walk out of my condo or like stand there waiting for him without like seeming creepy to express my interest, strike up a conversation? He's like mid-workout. And my friend Denzel was just like, yeah, it's going to be awkward, but you should just shoot your shot and do it anyway. It does sound like from what you're describing, there's a logistical problem here. Yes. If he is running, (laughs) how are you getting him to stop? Yeah. But so maybe Denzel's specific example isn't perfect because I'm not exactly sure you're supposed to trip him or like, (laughs) how do you get him to stop running? Although did Denzel think he was running by your house to see you? No, because I don't think he could have like seen me from the angle. It's just like my windows are wide open, but it's not like he's going to be like looking in and like, it's not like, you know, you were leaving your house at the same time he was running every day. No. And you no. had a little banter or something like, no. No, it's a cold open. <laughs> yeah. Like somebody who's running, it'd be really hard to like explain why you're stopping him or her from running. But like, I like the general idea. Like, <laughs> yes. like if you're, are you a dog person? I am. Do you have a dog? Okay. I don't have okay. one, but I'm an aspiring okay. dog owner. <laughs> okay. Well, get yourself a golden retriever or, or any, any breed, really, <laughs> and, and go to the dog park. Mm-hmm. And that's an environment where, look, I, I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. I actually think you can learn a lot about somebody by how they treat their dog. Yes. Yeah. See people in the dog park. You see how they interact with other dogs. Again, maybe I'm overrating the dog thing, but I actually think you can learn a lot about people by how they interact with dogs and also from other people at the dog park. And that's the kind of environment where you're at the dog park every day, you see the same guy, he's cute, you could kind of make a connection. Mm-hmm. And there is some context there because you've been there, you know, and you've seen him in the real world. You have, a, you can make some judgments about, not definite judgments about this character. Mm-hmm. He still could be, criminal (laughs) but (laughs) but human beings are pretty good at like making these kinds of judgments about character and as somebody who loves dogs i do think i'm sure your listeners some of them will be disagreeing i think you can learn a lot about people by how they deal with dogs yeah but it doesn't have to be dogs i mean you could join a running group Mm -hmm. and or may join his running group (laughs) 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 and like i I actually know a couple who met in a running group Mm mm-hmm I guess I prefer meeting strangers in the real world to meeting strangers online. Yeah. Because at least in the real world, you get to hear their voice and Mm -hmm. 
see how they deal with other people, other human beings. Yeah. But I much prefer the idea of dating somebody who you actually know a little bit. Yes. And whether it's a friend of a friend, like in the workplace or in you're in a bird watching group together, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, at least there's some social accountability, right? Yeah. Like if you know each other and know each other's friends, if you or he behaves badly, there's going to be consequences. And I yeah. think too many of these blind dates with complete strangers on dating apps, there are no social consequences to behaving badly. And I strongly suspect you could share some stories along those lines, right? Oh, yes, yes. At least if you meet in a bird watching group, if he ghosts you, he has to be prepared to also like ghost the bird watching group or deal right, with like right. the conflict. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, like imagine you meet somebody at church or yeah. at the mosque or a temple, like behave badly there. Oof. Yeah, that's no good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just have to say, thank you for somewhat validating that there was no appropriate way for me to approach this person. I mean, I guess you could trip him, maybe. I guess. And, or, or, and you should have the, the first aid kit ready after, after you accidentally... <laughs> I know, you it could clean, be horribly wrong, but... <laughs> you could clean his wounds and... And justify the means, maybe. But yeah. anyway, that is obviously in the past. But for anyone who is inspired by this and is really interested in learning more and maybe like getting some more inspiration around how they can start to apply this philosophy, I would love if you could plug where people can find you and your book for them to explore. So Make Your Move is available basically at all major booksellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you prefer to buy your books, indie books. You can find me on my website, johnberger.com. I'm no longer on Twitter, but I am on Instagram and you can, on Instagram, I am John, J-O-N underscore burger one on Instagram. And if you, the other thing I always like to mention is that I've partnered with a kind of a book author platform called bookyaya.com. And so basically if you have a book group and you want me or any of their authors to like do kind of a a Zoom Q&A with your book group, you can kind of arrange on Book Yaya to have, like, to have me talk to your book club, that kind of thing. That is so cool. I feel like that would be such an awesome opportunity to generate really in-depth discussion. I've done some and it's been fun. And yeah, like it's a, you know, it's the one part of like post-COVID life that I think is good because I, you couldn't have done this I'm sure some people did this before, but now, but now it seems natural, right? Yeah, like, yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. Normalizing Zoom discussions for some scenarios, yes. at least. And honestly, I just have to reiterate, like, I cannot overstate how much I enjoyed this book, even as someone who is not single. So cannot recommend going out, purchasing this book, reading for yourself enough. And thank you so much. As always, to the listeners, you can find me at Interstates and Heartbreak, all spelled out on Instagram and TikTok, or my personal account at Leslie Nope, L-E-S-L-I-E-G-N-O-P-E. Thank you so much, John. Leslie, thanks for having me on the pod. Let's be exclusive. Subscribe to Interstates and Heartbreak wherever you listen to podcasts for more firsthand stories about the unglamorous side of dating in Los Angeles. And while you're at it, you can write me a love letter with a rating and review on Apple. See you next Sunday.